Sage's Stories. Welcome to today's episode of Sage's Stories, the official podcast of Sage's, the Society of American Gastrointestinal and Endoscopic Surgeons. Please make sure to hit the like button and subscribe so you can stay up to date with our most recent episode and enjoy the show. All right. Welcome everyone who is ready for episode six of Sage's Stories, where we shine the light on some of Sage's most impactful leaders. I'm your co-host, Dr. Sharin Tofai. And I'm Dr. Kevin Alhayek. And this will be the first Sages Stories episode of 2022. And we couldn't be happier to share our guest story with our listeners. We think her story is going to be a great way to start off the year for all of us. Oh, absolutely. Today's guest will be known to all of our surgeon listeners as Joe Bysky. Dr. Joe Bysky has been serving as president and chief executive officer of the American Board of Surgery since 2019. Prior to that, Dr. Bysky was Chief of Surgery and Director of Minimally Invasive Surgery at Penn Presbyterian Medical Center in Philadelphia, as well as faculty at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. After medical school at Columbia, Dr. Bysky completed her general surgery residency at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston and started her career at Leahy Clinic before moving to Pennsylvania. She's still clinically active with a focus on minimally invasive gastrointestinal surgery, Notably, part of her story, which we will certainly dive into a little bit today, includes the fact that she was the first female president of Sages from 2010 to 2011. Welcome to Sages Stories, Joe. Thank you. It's really a, a pleasure and an honor to be here. Well, we're super excited. You're top on our list, and I'm glad that you made time for us. Um, as we'll learn through the rest of the hour, you are a very influential and busy a uh, surgeon and a uh, member of our surgical community. And I personally got to know you mostly through Sages. Um, and now I'm just thrilled about all your work at the American Board of Surgery. But as you've probably listened to our previous podcast, you know that we like to start off by getting a little background from our guests. So maybe you can enlighten us on, you know, how you were raised, where you grew up, or some key moments in your journey to date? Sure. So um, uh, I, I'm a Jersey girl. I grew up in Northern Jersey. Bruce Springsteen came along just in time to give Jersey some pride. You know, I like to think of myself as a barefoot girl sitting on the hood of the Dodge, drinking warm beer on soft summer nights. <laughs> that's, that's nice. I was actually born at uh, Columbia because we lived right across the bridge. And I got a... Um, a trivia question about myself wrong at a board bonding event several years ago where they they said you know where did dr Baisky, uh where was dr Baisky born and everybody said new jersey <laughs> and I, the answer you know actually everyone said new york and the answer was uh, whatever i had the, i had the two of them backwards so it's very <laughs> uh, very embarrassing for me <laughs> anyways the There's i grew up too much going on that's why you can't you can't keep it all straight <laughs> exactly thank you for helping me through my confusion there um, I grew up in Northern Jersey. I was the third daughter in a family of four. Um, I am named after my mother. And I always thought that, you know, it's a little bit weird to name your third kid after yourself, right? Uh, mostly if you're going to do that, you yeah. name your first one, you take your first opportunity. Yeah. And I know my parents very much wanted a boy. 
uh, and in those days, you know, men weren't in the delivery room. And my older sisters remember being with my dad and my mother called the house and she said, she didn't ask to speak to my father. She said, tell him it's a girl and her name is Jo, uh, which is my mother's Aww. name also. So I, I think that that was her way of like, no, really, we really wanted you. We wanted you so much that we named you after me. Uh, and I grew up, I always was, um, one of the boys, you know, when I was in kindergarten and we played superheroes, I was the only girl who could play superheroes and I was Catwoman. Um, I, I just weirdly, uh, you know, one of my little friends in second grade, Gerald Finley had a sleepover and I was the only girl who was invited. My mother was very concerned about the propriety of that. Um, I had two older sisters and my, and my younger brother and people referred to us as the older set and the younger set. And sometimes they referred to the boys and the, the boys because I kept my hair short and, you know, ran around with boys. And, uh, I think I was always sort of tracking into the, the companionship of men. Uh, and I think that that's part of what attracted me to surgery. You know, I, um, I just always was was the girl and then the woman in a group of men i did like medicine i liked bodies i like my favorite um possession was a book called human anatomy that had you know graphics of stomachs and hearts and things and we didn't have a lot of money when i was growing up so we had one toy bin uh, and we all shared it and nobody had their own toys. And so the human anatomy book belonged to all of us. And it was in the toy bin because it was just kind of a kid's book. But I wrote my name in it um, to sort of try to take possession of it because it was my favorite thing. And I would, I used to say I wanted to be a nurse. We also had a little nursing hat in that, in that, uh, in that kit. And my mother who had a master's degree in food chemistry and my father had a PhD in biochemistry and pharmacology. My mother was always just sort of pushing us forward. Um, and so I'd say, I want to be a nurse. And she'd go, oh, you mean you want to be a doctor? And later I would say, I want to be a pet store owner because I loved animals. I want to own a pet store. She'd be like, oh, you mean you want to be a veterinarian? She was just always, you know, kind of shoving me a little bit harder down the path. And so I did like uh, medicine. I loved doctor shows. I actually still like doctor shows. You know, I watched everything yeah. from, you know, Marcus Welby, Dr. Kildare, MASH, um, uh, you know, I, you know, the whole list of all of them up to and including Grey's Anatomy, although I dropped out after about the third season. Um, but I liked them because I liked medicine and I, uh, and people would make fun of me when I was a resident or even an attending and still like those shows. I was like, I don't know. I always liked it. I still like it, but I never thought about surgery. Surgery wasn't even real to me. You know, medicine was my doctor who was probably a family practice person. I don't even know. And when I went to medical school, uh, it just never crossed my mind that I would be a surgeon. MASH was very popular then, and people would ask me sometimes if I thought I might go into surgery. And I went to Columbia, uh, and there was a very large portion of the class there goes into surgery, or did at the time anyway. I think of a class of 150 people, 30 people went into surgery. Um, wow. And another 30 went into surgical subspecialties. It was like a huge draw, very popular rotation absolutely enormous resident service that was resident run. And, you know, we were sort of in a, in a rough neighborhood in New York, a lot of trauma, people just really liked it. And so a lot of the people in my class wanted to go into surgery and they were a lot, they were jockeying for position for when they were going to do their surgical rotation so that they could, they wouldn't be their first rotation so that they, you know, had some idea how to get around the hospital, but they wanted to get invited to the golf tournament in the spring. 
um, <laughs> where they thought that they could, you know, make connections. And so there was a, and I was like, I don't care. I'll, I'll do surgery whenever, because I'm not going to go into surgery anyway. So it was one of my last rotations. And then match applications were paper. Um, so it was completely filled out uh, for, for me to go into internal medicine, which I thought I was doing. And literally my first day of surgery, they did a carotid endarterectomy. And I was like, what? <laughs> uh, and by Friday, uh, I had changed my mind and was going into surgery and I've never looked back. Uh, I'm incredibly grateful that I had the opportunity to enter this field. Uh, that's I think so that was, cool. Yeah. So that's my, I think that's my backstory. Quickly moved into surgery. Did you have any uh, early mentors that uh, guided you at that time uh, into surgery or, you know, specifically even when you decided to, to focus on, on minimally invasive surgery? Uh, I've had a few mentors over time. Uh, the, the guy who ran the student clerkship at Columbia, and I can picture him now, but I'm drawing a blank on his name. Uh, there, there was one woman on faculty at Columbia uh, uh, and one female resident. Uh, and he was very cheery about the idea of women going into surgery. He was like, oh, you know, surgeons, you have to have the personality to tolerate a lot of chaos. A career in surgery is chaotic. Never know when you're going to have to go back to the operating room, how long a case is going to take. He's like, if you can handle that kind of chaos, you can certainly handle, you know, wedging a couple of parent-teacher conferences and maybe your kid's little league game in the middle of there. It's, it's fine. And I was like, oh, it's fine. You know, so he was very encouraging. He did not discourage women at all. Everyone else around me, when I said I was going into surgery, except for my family, had a meltdown. You know, my faculty advisor, my then boyfriend, um, they all thought I was crazy. Um, once I was a resident, um, you know, Mass General was a fantastic place to do a residency. My program director was fully focused on patient care. Uh, he and I actually, to this day, email each other every day. He's 90. Wow. <laughs> so he was definitely of the, you know, WWJD, you know, what would Les do? WWLD, my program director, both in my <laughs> personal life and my professional life. He was a very, very big impact. What so, is his name? Les Ottinger. Very nice. And uh, uh, so certainly a mentor. I would not necessarily say a sponsor. Um, there was definitely a kind of, you know, throw them, throw them out there and see what happens. So throughout residency, you know, really your guides at that time were your co-residents. I'm not sure someone listening to this might get mad, but I'm not sure I could say that there were faculty who really were looking after me. Susan Briggs was one of two women on staff at Mass General. And she used to, um, she would have, take the women residents out to dinner initially, there being three of us. And then eventually, eventually. Uh, it required a full table and then two tables and kind of grew. So she did keep an eye out for um, for women in the program. It was mostly reassuring. Um, when I got my first job, my that was when I think I had my first true mentor sponsor. And he later told me that the um, letter of recommendation he got from Mass General, and I don't know if it was less, I should ask him actually, he probably doesn't remember, or the chair or who wrote it. But um, they said that, you know, they couldn't, you know, couldn't ask for more from a clinical surgeon, you know, devoted to the patients, technically good, but lacking in leadership qualities, which I think Ooh, is very interesting. <laughs> might, we might unpack that a little bit. In a, in a <laughs> I enjoy that. <laughs> yeah. That's, uh, do you still have that letter? I love, I love. No, no, I never saw it. He just told never me. He actually pulled it out of his yeah. drawer and read that sentence. Well, you, you, I feel like you got to track those things down and keep yeah. it to, to sort of as just little, 
little reminders of what, what people thought. Uh, right, and how, how you can be misjudged. I will say in fairness that when I was, I think a junior in college, my mother sent me to an assertiveness training class because she thought I was too easily like pushed around and I actually failed out. <laughs> wow. Another wow. odd fact. I, I think I was just a late bloomer on multiple fronts. Your your mom seems fascinating. Was she pushing the, your other siblings the same way that she was promoting you to do so much? All four of us. Yeah, no, we were, and it was, um, you know, it was really just a striving to be your best self. You know, it's a very academic family. She comes from a long family. Like my grandmother um, had a master's degree. Um, oh, wow. She and my grandmother both went to Cornell. All of her siblings had advanced degrees. They're a highly academic family. And um, they're sort of, you know, Anglo-Saxon in their New England Puritan in their aesthetic. And uh, um, they were definitely like, you must contribute to society. You must, you know, uh, advance humanity. Uh, and you need the tools to do that. And the tools to do that in their, in their world was by further education. Yeah. And your father, what was his role? My dad, um, my dad was very different from that. Like my mother's family could be traced all the way back to the American Revolution. My dad's family were Polish immigrants. Uh, his parents were both Polish immigrants. He grew up on a chicken farm in Alabama. Um, he is the only one in his family. At one point, his poor mom had five kids, no, six kids under five. He was a twin. Um, and he's the only one who went to college. Uh, and then he went on to get a PhD. So he was very anomalous in his family and they were culturally, those two families were clearly culturally extremely different. They did, they lived in Missouri when we were growing up in New Jersey and we didn't see a lot of them. It wasn't that easy to travel. So um, I'm still in touch with some of my cousins, but we were nowhere near as close to them. So he was, you know, he was the provider. My mom didn't work when we were growing up. Uh, he was a scientist. In fact, when I, he was excited that I went into medical school, but uh, what he said when I got in was that's great. Doctors heal people one at a time. Scientists cure entire generations. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, wow. that's real. Uh, it's, uh, <laughs> we're, 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 we're certainly seeing that today. Uh, so. it, was a, it was a throwdown challenge as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> <laughs> and now you have a family. I do. So my dad was the boy part of a boy-girl twin set and he died in 1990. And I uh, had boy-girl twins in the 1994. Wow. I was extremely excited about that. I was 34 years old. I'm tall, so I thought, you know, it's carrying twins, no big deal. You know, a couple of my friends had one kid, some had two. I was like catching up all in one fell swoop. But I also just felt really special <laughs> life stuff. I thought it was awesome. I couldn't have been more pleased. I also thought I had like pregnancy insanity and I, I thought I was freaking gorgeous. I felt like a fertility goddess. I felt <laughs> fabulous throughout my pregnancy. That's um, awesome. Had those kids, uh, Emmy and David, who are going to be 28 in February. Uh, and then a couple of years later, when I was trying to get pregnant again, I was having this wonderful fantasy about how easy one was going to be. You know, I managed to, I breastfed both of them. I mean, wow. uh, uh, and I thought my hardest decision was going to be like, which one of those cute cribs do I keep for the, you know, the singleton who's going to come along. And, um, and I got pregnant with another set of twins. Oh my gosh. I was, I was furious. <laughs> <laughs> as delighted as I was the first time, I was oh, furious the man. second time. Oh, and, uh, uh, you know, it's efficient. It's definitely yeah, very efficient. And I had two of everything and I already knew how to do it. It's like and running through rooms. <laughs> it's a lot like right it's like just running from you know crisis to crisis to crisis to crisis you know 
Um, and for a long time, that was really my identity. I was like the surgeon with two sets of twins. You know, mm-hmm. um, I was visible. You know, I pushed my double stroller with the kids sitting in each other's laps around the neighborhood. Uh, and then uh-huh. it kind of ended. Like they got a little older. They're all fraternal. They don't look that alike. I, I put them in different classes in school. And now, like, I rarely think of myself as having two sets of twins. I have four kids. Uh, so it, uh-huh. it sort of it, it disappeared over time. But when they were little, it was a lot. <laughs> And do you channel your mom's like, like force into your type of parenting or? I do. I do. Uh, So much these generations. Yes. So, you know, I was a springboard diver in high school and in in diving, it really matters what the quality of the board is. Uh, And so it has to be flexible and it has to, it has to sort of, and sturdy, and it has to fling you up into the air. That's like critical. And then once you're flung into the air, then you have to do all your twisting and turning and stuff. But if the board doesn't throw you high enough, if it's not a good enough board, then you can't, you can't do all the stuff that you need to do. And I think of my mother as, as a really, really good diving board. I think she thought of herself that way too. Like she flung me into the air um, at the right height, you know, the right distance to, and then I had to do the rest myself. Um, and so I, I was, I was very much a free range mom. I let my kids make a lot of their own choices. Um, I, uh, she was very athletic and i she would take us skiing and ice skating when we were all little. I have this permanent memory of her kind of bending over us, whistling and tying four children's ice skate laces, you know, oh my and God. it was wow. like, we, we had zippers and wool clothes then, you know, it wasn't like Velcro and snaps. Uh, and yeah. so, you know, I did the same thing with my kids, kind of dragged them out in all weather They're, you know, they uh, tried them all through all of their sports. And she had a, she had a very clear, uh, intention. She was like, uh, happiness is a choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she chose to be optimistic. She chose to be healthy. You know, she had a lot of really firm rules about, you know, uh, an hour of sleep before midnight is worth two after, you know, um, it was like a crime to sleep past sunrise on any, you know, any given morning. She grew up on a farm and uh, she always ate food in season. We never ate. I never even knew you could get strawberries in January. <laughs> For us, I was concerned you got to eat strawberries in June and then you had to wait until next June before you could eat strawberries. Um, so a lot of the things that she did were, I think, you know, you go, you'll read about them in the health section or the wellness section now of the New York Times. And I think that they were a really good foundation. Um, I do think a lot about how she raised us. She also raised us by the book. She had Dr. Spock's book. Um, there mm. were rules, you know, and then you read the next chapter. And so I, I did a lot of reading about how to raise my kids. I thought I knew everything about twins, except for the possibility of having a second set. That part I didn't know until it happened. But, um, uh, you know, the sort of that there is a structure around how you raise kids uh, and that structure is good for them. All, I think all those things. She also put a huge emphasis on ed- education, obviously, um, as did as did we. So you started uh, your your career at the Leahy Clinic. Uh, what was the your first job like, and what were some of the key things you learned during your transition from training to practice? That was a great job, I have to say. I. Um, uh, I took it as a sort of temporary job. I was married to another surgical resident who was a year behind me in training because he did three years of research uh, and then did a fellowship. Fellowships weren't as common then as they were now, so I didn't do one. But we knew we were going to be in Boston for three more years. So it was, I wasn't sure it was a permanent job or a temporary job. And the Leahy was great for a couple of reasons. Um, one is they were very structured about how they developed young faculty. 
And there were, again, like, as with my mom, there were a lot of rules. Like you were expected to see 12 patients in a half day clinic and 24 in a full day clinic. If when you left um, on Friday, the person who was on call for the weekend would cover all your patients. If you were leaving for vacation, that person would cover all your patients until you came back. You didn't have to like ask around. Amazingly, in 1994, they had a maternity leave policy, which was two months, full pay, full benefits, not expected to pay back your call. You get a third month if your doctor wrote a note saying that you needed a third month. I was like, twins, not doing this again. I get the third month. Um, You know, that's very progressive. It wasn't just in surgery. It was across the board for the whole hospital. And my, my chair... Um, my chair had been through a very bitter divorce, an extremely ugly, excruciating divorce, and was considered a little bit of a sexist, misogynist kind of guy, (laughs) and not a great role model or mentor, but the divorce really changed him. And he'd gotten remarried to a woman who was my age, she's about 10 years older than I was, who had a PhD in biology. And he was like, I'm going to do better this time. I'm getting a second chance here and I'm doing better. And, and, and he was like, I'm going to, I'm going to mentor and sponsor that young woman. And it was funny because the older faculty there were like, who is this man and what is happening and why is he being so good with her? And he was fantastic. Um, you know, he accommodated my having the babies. He had a kid actually at the same time, Emmy and David without blinking. And he critically so there weren't minimally surgeons very new then. I was the only person at the Leahy who had done a lap coli as a resident. Um, and so they'd all taken weekend courses and they actually had a rule that you had to do your first, I think, 12 lap coli's with another fac- faculty member before you could do them by yourself. But I did three with a faculty member and they were like, forget it, you're fine. You know, you, you know more about it than the rest of us do. The Leahy really wanted specialists. They did not want people to do everything. They wanted there to be a pancreatic surgeon, a breast surgeon, again, before their time, because most places still had general surgeons. Um, and so they were like, well, what, do, what, what are you going to do? What's your specialty going to be? And I was like, oh, I like general surgery. Uh, and they were like, that's fine. You can do that for a year, but then you have to pick. And I didn't pick. And he said, I'm picking. We need a minimally invasive surgery and you're it. A minimally invasive oh. surgeon. So he sent me down to Atlanta to work with John Hunter to learn how to do lap nissens. And I also visited Carlos Pellegrini. And I did a sort of listening tour uh, to figure out what tools I needed to bring minimally invasive surgery to the Leahy, including what equipment to buy, what companies to contact, how to train ancillary staff. Um, And I came back with sort of a playbook and they fully supported me. Um, We had um, animal labs where we had, you know, technicians learning how to do things, you know, whole teams brought the OR nurses. Um, They bought all the equipment that I asked for. And my chair critically uh, scrubbed on the first several advanced laparoscopy procedures that we did because he said, if something goes really wrong, my reputation can take it, yours cannot. So I'm going to be the surgeon in the room. That's um, it was great. Um, yeah. And they also immediately designated me as the, as, the, as the minimally invasive surgeon. So if any patient came into the hospital who could benefit from minimally invasive surgery, even if they were going to see another surgeon, they would send them to me. Um, so the lady had actually a very flat fee structure. So it wasn't as much of the eat what you kill thing that it is in so many other hospitals. Like it wasn't to the surgeon's advantage to do five times as many cases as someone else. Um, they really wanted everybody to get up to some you know, reasonable workload and then stop and start sending patients to other surgeons. So there wasn't as much in the way of competition or case protective or practice protectiveness. 
So they willingly sent me all, all the cases and pretty darn quickly, I was the minimally invasive surgeon. You know, mm -hmm. They had the, the, the sort of structural support and then the clinical support. Uh, and then, you know, after just, you know, a couple of years, I, you know, had all the experience that I could ask for. And then I was, we were, we were couples recruited to Penn where they. Okay. That was going to be my question is uh, yeah. what made you then move to Penn? I know I was really sad. <laughs> I grew up in Northern Jersey, as I said, and then I, you know, I, I lived in some great cities, um, New York for medical school and then Boston. And if you grew up in Northern Jersey, the only city in the world is really New York. Uh, and so Philadelphia was the city that I sometimes drove by on my way to DC. And my now ex-husband had been born in Philadelphia, actually at Presbyterian where I later became chief of surgery and, uh, had gone to, had, had grown up in the suburbs, but then had gone to medical school here during the mayor good era, the move bombing, didn't have a thing nice to say about the city, thereby confirming, you know, my worst fears about it. Mm. And he came down for an interview and I was like, see ya. You come back and tell me all about it because we're not moving to Philadelphia. <laughs> uh -huh. And then, um, you know, they did a pretty nice couples recruitment. They they brought us both down. They put us up at the Four Seasons on an exquisite fall weekend. I had been training for my first marathon, uh, but had gotten hurt. So I didn't think I would be able to run. But the marathon was that weekend and it was going right by the Four Seasons. And Marathons didn't have lotteries. They weren't hard to get into then. And I was like, you know, maybe I'll try, you know, I'll, I'll start the marathon. It goes right by the hotel. I can drop out if it's not working out. So I ran my first marathon. It was fantastic. So the whole weekend, we just had this like golden glow around it. I was like, I love Philadelphia. So <laughs> I love it. So, you know, we, we ended up moving here. What um, year was that? That was 1996. So you were at uh, Leahy for two years three years. three years i finished my residency in 93 it? so i was there for three years yeah and then and i really been... and you've you've stayed in penn right you've never moved from penn that's correct um penn uh i started at hup which was i think the only hospital in the health system at the time oh hup in the va hospital hup is the hospital the university of pennsylvania <laughs> no one's ever plastered a name on it it's kind of surprising but uh they bought, after I'd been there for a couple of years, they bought a, a small hospital in West Philadelphia that was for sale, mostly, I think, because they didn't want one of the other health systems in the area to have a hospital in their backyard. They didn't appear to really have a plan for it. There was discussion about turning it into like a specialty hospital, um, a rehab hospital, closing the whole thing, who knew. Um, but there were patients there and a lot of the staff left when it got sold. Uh, and they backfilled, Penn backfilled with mid-career non-academic surgeons, clinicians, uh, not surgeons, internists, uh, to take care of the patient population. And after about three years, they were like, we need surgeons. We need good surgeons, not just sort of these sort of itinerant people who are operating at five hospitals and being paid to take call. Um, and so they asked me to build a department of surgery at Presbyterian with a sort of ill-defined goal. Like I wasn't, wasn't clear whether I was competing with HUP yeah, or, you know, uh, but they did uh, to sweeten it. They said they would make it the minimally invasive surgery center for the health system. We had the first designated suite. We had the first robot, um, stuff like that. So I spent 10 years at Presbyterian. It was a fantastic ride, just a great growth period. Um, really fun to be in on the ground level like that. You know, it was because it was growing, the hospital is basically run by the CEO, the chair of surgery and the chair of medicine. They didn't have the full infrastructure when they first started. So I had a lot more say. Um, than you would normally have. And, and I learned the whole language of administration, which I didn't um, 
which I didn't have before. And we went from having five operating rooms that closed down at three in the afternoon to by the time I left, I think we had 15. We had cardiac surgery, thoracic surgery, had a med surge ICU, and then a surgery ICU. I mean, it really exploded. It was really a great experience. Um, I was sorry to leave the Leahy, and then I was sorry to leave Presby also. They were really both great jobs. These are all such great stories. So uh, last month we had uh, John Millinger, who you know very well. And so we did talk about you a little bit. Uh, we cheated a little bit. And he told us about his initial work with you on a status committee. So um, before I get into his quote, uh, when did you get involved in SAGES and what was, who, who prompted or how'd you, how'd so you first get involved? That same, um, you know, Rue and Cat of a chair, that guy, uh, he, the Leahy had a very strict budget for what they would pay for memberships and subscriptions, journal subscriptions, because you had to subscribe to journals, paper journals. Um, it was $1,000 and you couldn't go over that. And the AMA, I think, cost 400 so nobody would join the AMA because if you did that, you couldn't, um, you know, couldn't afford anything else. And so he was advising me because that's pretty limited. You know, you can probably only join three societies really for that. And he said, uh, and I was like, I think I, I want to join <laughs> the SSAT, which is what everybody, you know, that was the academic surgery, you know, society. Clinical one, yeah. Yeah. And he said, you could do that. Um, he goes, you might want to look at this little society called Sages. I think that they are going to be the way of the future. Uh, and so I did. So I think the first meeting I went to was in Orlando. Uh, I remember feeling very awkward and sort of by myself. I didn't know anybody. Uh, David Ratner, who was uh, yeah. sages before me, had been young faculty at MGH when I was there. And I remember sort of awkwardly approaching him at the Friday night party so I would have someone to talk to. Um, and Barbara Bercy, the late, late Barbara Bercy, uh, just tells a story about identifying me as sort of earnest and focused and putting me on a committee. Um, and that's so he, that yeah, he, so, so John made the comment um, that when you got on a committee, he, he noticed you and he, he made the comment uh, that if, if, if someone was to follow footsteps, he said, they should be a Joe and not a John. Uh, so uh, <laughs> what's your side of the story uh, behind that uh, comment? It's funny because I, I do know what he was talking about. So I've never <laughs> been on a committee. I didn't know what it, it meant. Um, and I am a student, you know, I, I come from that, you know, school oriented family. Uh, I mean, a lot of us <laughs> spend so many years in school, you kind of come that way, whether you were born that way or not. And so when I get assignments, I do them. Uh, and so they were talking, it was a new committee and they were talking about, you know, information they wanted to get or, you know, some sort of proposals they wanted to write. And I heard all of that as a work assignment. So I wrote them all down. And when I came back to the committee meeting six months later, I had done them all. I had looked at the things up that they had open questions about. I didn't even really realize that there was like staff that was gonna do some of that stuff. And, <laughs> and, and the room was kind of stunned. And I think even maybe a little embarrassed for me, you know, um, uh, and then they were like, they just said, oh, well, thank you very much. And, and I, I, I think that I became, you know, reliable and interested and, so when people ask me about, you know, well, how do you ascend? I'm like, well, honestly, one thing is show up, you know, get to the meeting on time, have done the reading beforehand. Don't be the person who packs up your bag and is like, I have to go now, you know, 10 yeah. minutes before the end of the meeting, like stay. If you have the honor and the opportunity to do that kind of work, 
then do it, you know, do it and do a good job. And that'll put you ahead of, you know, 85% of the other people who were texting and, you know, wandering in and out and didn't, you know, weren't prepared. And a lot of it was that for that phase of my career, it was diligence. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's very true. Um, Sages is very active with its committees, a lot of time devoted to it. And it really makes a difference when uh, you see some members that, you know, gotta go. <laughs> or sorry I'm late but yeah um and then and then fast forward you were the first female president of sages uh yeah what are your memories from from that um that was really an honor it was sort of a that was amazing uh i loved sages uh it really was really remains my sort of society home uh a lot of my long-term friends are from there, and um, I just felt like being, you know, being recognized in that way was sort of amazing for me. Um, you know, being the president, I think it was simpler. It wasn't as enormous a society then as it is now. Uh, so, you know, I met with Sally every week, had a phone call with her. You know, we sort of structured what we wanted for the year. One of the great things about being Sage's president is you actually do people the committees and sort of promote the chairs, or at least you did then. So there's a lot of setting the stage for the future, which is something that I really, really like to do. Um, uh, and then I, you know, you get to invite the keynote speakers, which sort of sets the tone for a lot of the meeting. So uh, it was, it was, a, uh, it was, a, it was overwhelmingly um, powerful year for me. I also, so, I think that was oh. the first one. I'm sorry. I hadn't been so clearly a model for people, like especially international surgeons, like stood in line to meet me and shake my hand and have their picture taken with me. And I think that may have been the first time I was like, oh, I'm, I'm wearing robes, you know, like I'm, a, I'm not just me, you yeah. know, I'm, I'm her you know, I'm the president, you know, and that I still carry that with me now. Like I'm the, I'm the CEO of the American Board of Surgery. And that's different than me. A friend of mine just became the dean of a medical school. And she called me and she said, I have to make sure that the dean walks into the room before I do. And she's mm. like, you have to tell me how to do that. Uh, and uh, I think that that meeting, that presidency was the place where I kind of understood that it's important to be what people need you to be. I would say, you know, from an observer, uh, you definitely stood out amongst the leadership. Mm -hmm. And um, I was there when you were president. And I could see up until then, you were such a notable person at like Sage's Sing Off and the meetings and running around. And you're tall also, which um, is, is nice. I kind of like, you don't get lost amongst everyone else from, based on just physical stature, but also you carry yourself in a very, uh, it's a nice kind of mix of being feminine and also part of the, the crew at the same time. And one thing that we can tell right now with just the way the stories, these amazing stories that you have, um, you're very uh, much like a people's person. When you talk, it's you're like talking to uh like a friend as opposed to you know like executive director of the board of surgery <laughs> past president um so that's a quality of you i don't know where it came from or if you learned it but you're very um what's the right term kind of like 
approachable. Kind, approachable, kind, soft. Uh, that's yeah. a very nice quality to see in a leader. I'm glad. I'm, I'm glad that uh, I'm glad that you feel that way and that you see that. Um, I think if uh, it certainly isn't something that I've tried to do. It's uh, if anything, you know, sort of a standing joke among my peers. I'm like, diplomacy is not my strong suit. You know, dissimulation isn't. I think people generally know, you know, where I'm coming from and what I stand for. Uh, and one of the great things about getting older is that there's very much less to be afraid of. You can there's less cost to knowing exactly who you are and yeah. standing for what you want to stand for. Like at some point, I was like. I don't really care, you know, if you don't like me anymore. Um, I don't care, uh, you know, so so fire me, you know, so sue me. It's like, I, these are the things that I think are right. This is my list. These are the things that I stand for now. Um, and any pretense of trying to fit in in any other environment, I was able to shed, um, you know, within the last five years or so or decade. And that's, you know, that happens over time. But I think I was, you know, like anyone as a junior faculty, sort of afraid to speak out too much or stand up for myself too much or stand up for other people a lot. Um, uh, and that's been a really uh, a, a wonderful joy of the last five, five years or maybe 10 years of my career. And some of that is platforms like Sages that I, I did start to feel brave um, because those roles were so, um, so potentially impactful and because I was so welcomed in them. Yeah, I mean, you even just looking at your timeline. I mean, you were you were elected to the American Board of Surgery in two thousand six, and then you shifted toward staff in two thousand eight. So, and then Sage's president two years later. I mean, it's clear you were juggling significant leadership responsibilities uh, around that time. So, what were or are some of the tips, tricks that you would give to? surgeons for managing, you know, clinical practice, life, major, major <laughs> responsibilities as a national leader, you know, all these things. I, I, know, I don't want to use the word balance or anything like that, because I know that's can be a trigger for, for some of us, but you know, just, just managing it, like integrating it. So um, I have thought about that a lot. One of my, my best friends at the Leahy, uh, there were three women in surgery, one of whom was Laura Sanders, who was a co-resident of mine at MGH, who died at 42 of ovarian cancer. And when I got to the Leahy, she was very good friends with this woman, Pat Roberts, who's a colorectal surgeon, leader in colorectal surgery. And I was sort of jealous. I was like, wait, what? You already have a friend? Like, I want to be your friend. You know, she had been my chief resident. You know how you feel about your chief resident when you're an intern. Um, and so the three of us would do things together. And um, I think we were, we might've all been married and none of us had kids when it started. And then when LB died, Pat and I kind of looked at each other like, are we friends? Like, do we actually have anything in common? And that's because we are very, very different. Um, and so I would pass Pat, you know, in the middle of the night, I'd be coming to the hospital and I'd be like a train wreck, you know, I was like wearing my pajamas and my hair was on fire. Uh, and she had her makeup on and her glasses on and her hair blown dry at two in the morning as she was leaving the hospital because she was colorectal surgery. We had this funky call schedule where we overlapped. Uh, and she paced her career. She would get asked to assume roles, committee chair, executive committee of the, you know, I'm making these up, but, you know, the, the colorectal society. And she would be like, no. You know, my kid's, you know, uh, going to be a senior and they're captain of the soccer team and that's not going to be a good year for me. And I was like, oh, you can't do that. Like, <laughs> they're never going to come your way again. You know, that's crazy. Yeah. 
And yeah. she did that every step of the way where as I was just like, yes, thank you. You know, at every step of the way. Um, and it kind of worked out for both of us. Um, I think she had a more controlled life than I did. Cause I literally was like, yes, thank you to every opportunity. And she was just like, yep, yeah, no, no, that'll come around again or it won't come around again. And that's okay. My own parallel to that is that at one point feeling very overwhelmed, I decided I wasn't going to give any talks. You know, I had spent many years saying, I have to give fewer talks. I can't accept all these invitations. I, I cannot keep going on the road, leaving home, you know, preparing talks, which actually made me very anxious delivering talks, which also made me anxious. I just can't do it. And I would try to do fewer, but it didn't work. And so I had to have the absolute of like, I'm not gonna do fewer, I'm gonna do none. I'm gonna do none for an academic year. And I told a few of my colleagues and they were like, don't tell anyone you're doing it because you're stressed, do not. Don't even tell them you're not doing it. Just tell them you're booked. You know, if people invite you to give talks, like tell them you're, you're booked until, you know, next year. Um, it'll ruin your career, you know, it'll be over. And I didn't, I was just like, I'm not mm -hmm. giving any talks this year. And they were like, wow, <laughs> that's awesome. And then the next year they all wanted me to give talks and it was fine. So I, I pulled myself out and then I put myself back in and it worked fine. And that's kind of how Pat worked all those years. Amazing. That's, that's interesting. That's a great, great tip. That is a great tip. Yeah, it's surprising. I think um, the same thing happened to me with maternity leave. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it took three months and then I, I did the same thing when I went to Penn where they had no idea what to, what to do with someone who was pregnant. They nearly had a meltdown and they were like, we don't know what to do about leave. I was like, I know exactly what you should do about leave. They weren't actually as generous in the end as the lady. <laughs> but um, uh, I let, I, you know, I was like, well, your practice is gonna just implode. If you, you can't just disappear for three months. They didn't have as good a coverage system as we did at the Leahy either. But I sent out a letter to all my referring doctors said I'm gonna be out on maternity leave. And then when I came back, I sent out another letter and said, I'm back. Uh, and I got a whole bunch of like, oh my gosh, that went fast. You know, I actually, we didn't actually notice you're gone because people actually aren't paying that much attention to you most of the time. Uh, and a few people were like, oh, thank God, I've been waiting. And I mean, within six weeks, I was right back where I had ever been. So this kind of, you know, boogeyman of, uh, you know, you have to stay, you know, stay busy to stay relevant, um, turns out not to be that much of a, an issue. And I, I don't feel like it was luck. I think it's just true, you know, that you do, you do good work, you make yourself known. I don't like to overpromise ever. And so you asked about balance with my kids. I was always very, very clear that um, if, if they had a thing, I wouldn't schedule anything else that day. Um, you know, I would do like administrative work or something because that one hernia that you put on the schedule, sorry about that, that has the ability to, um, you know, to turn into a disaster, uh, to get delayed, to not have a test, uh, and then you're late. And so I was really quite paranoid about not, you know, not scheduling anything or much of anything if I had a kid event. And I would either say, I'm going to be there, or I'd say, I'm sorry, I'm not going to be there. I also kind of got from my mom the idea that kids should not be the center of an adult universe, that that's actually bad for them and makes them, make, gives them an artificial sense of their own importance. So I wasn't someone who wanted to go to every practice or you know um, every single event and be like, I will be at this one, I won't be at that one. Uh, and then I did it. I was always at it if I said I was gonna be because I fixed my life in order to be. And if I was on call, I'd be like, yeah, I'm not gonna be there. Whereas a lot of my colleagues would be like, I'm going to really try. I'm going to try to be at your thing. I can't be sure if I'm going to be at your thing, but mm -hmm. I'm going to try. And then their kids are like anxious, you know, and they're waiting and watching and hoping you're going to come. And mine were just like, yeah, no, mom's not, mom's not going to be here. 
That's really great. I feel like so many people, especially in this generation, they have this FOMO fear of missing out. They don't want to miss out on their all their children's events. They don't want to say no to fall behind academically, and their relevance may diminish if you're not at every single meeting in front of somebody giving a talk. And yeah, just just being very clear about it and being okay with it yourself too. Obviously, that's a really great lesson. I, no one's ever said it like like you have. I you know I I used to give a talk. You know, for a while, I was like the traveling salesperson for women who had it all. Uh, and that was what everybody wanted me to talk about, how to have it all. Life balance, married to another surgeon, four children, chief of surgery, you know. Uh, and I gave a really freaking obnoxious talk about how you too can have it all if you're only just super organized and super energetic and super everything. <laughs> uh, and I feel bad now. I, I hope that everyone who heard that talk came to later ones. <laughs> Um, you did. You were a Catwoman growing up, so I was. I, mean, I was. I was Catwoman. You were already a superhero. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I really came to, you know, came to believe in in staging a little bit of the Pat Roberts, you know, a little bit of the Pat Roberts lesson, and especially for my kids, I just really didn't want to let them down, and and they were fine. I even asked them as you know adults. I was like, okay, so now now what's the truth? You know, did you resent my you know, being there so, so little. And they were like, nope. I said, we knew that what you were doing important was important. We knew that you would be there for us if we needed you. Um, uh, they said that the only thing they really disliked, and I think this is a thing of the past, but we always wore our scrubs back and forth the hospital all the time. And none of us cared if our scrubs were bloody, like bloody shoes uh, was just absolutely standard for walking around the hospital. Yeah. And uh, they were like, they were like, it was very upsetting when you came home with blood on your scrubs. <laughs> that was, they were like, that has permanently traumatized us. <laughs> But, uh, but, you know, I have a, you know, I, I mean, they're all coming home for Christmas, even though they're all grown ups. They came home for Thanksgiving. They call me. My daughter, my daughter showed me her text um, statistics the other day, and I'm the number one text, you know, person that she texts with. Um, she's one of the 28 year olds. I have one, one, one girl and three boys. And so, I mean, I think, I think it worked out okay. None of them went into surgery or medicine and I don't care. I didn't want them. I don't, I didn't want them to, I did not want them to. I, my hope for them is that they find something as meaningful, um, to them as, as I did. That's mm -hmm. it. I didn't, I didn't feel rejected or, um, you know, felt the need to drive them into anything. So. Well, what you're most you're most known for now is your role with the American Board of Surgery. Um, maybe we can dig a little bit deeper in that. You became executive director in 2017 and ultimately president and CEO in 2019. Um, I love the American Board of Surgery. I've had my own little privilege of playing a small role, writing test questions for the hernia section <laughs> for the orals and written boards and just absolutely love it and hope one day to be more involved in a serious way. Um, but there's been a lot of key changes and you were deeply involved in this very momentous time of change with the American Board of Surgery. Perhaps you can, um, I know there's a lot to talk about, but maybe focus on two of them that you think our audience should be aware of and how a lot of these decisions came to be, whether it's about changing the way um, we test or improving family leave time. So uh, I, I want to talk about sort of uh, making it so life can work with being a surgeon. 
And the, the area in which I have the most opportunity to do that is in training. You know, I don't have much control over what the work environment's like for a practicing surgeon. In fact, not much control, I have no control, but I do uh, over what it's like to be a trainee. And um, starting along, before the parental leave discussions started, uh, I, I, Julie Freischleig actually asked me to give a talk about on-ramps and off-ramps for surgeons. And in my mind, she was pretty clearly after an on-ramp for women who had had children and then dropped out and never came back. Um, but it turned out when I did a survey of all of the academic chairs in the country, that was really fun for me because I was new at the board and I basically sent out an email to everybody and everybody answered. So like famous surgeons that I was still like impressed and intimidated by, I now had a board email address and they all responded. That was fantastic. Yeah. Um, but it, it turned out that there were a lot of people, um, there were women who had left because they had children, but there were people who had left um, to pursue a different career to because they had major depression, because they had a cancer diagnosis, um, because they had a big adventure. And then once you leave surgery, at that point in time, the door really just slammed shut behind you. There was like no way to get back in. And I felt like, wow, that's just such a terrible waste. And then uh, that extrapolated from that into training that, you know, if you fall out of the, the lockstep of training um, for any of those reasons, you were kind of cast aside. And I was like, we can't be a profession where, um, you know, an accident or a, or a change of heart or a misstep throws you out forever. That doesn't make any sense. So the first thing that I was involved with that I was really proud of um, was adding the sixth year, creating the five and six pathway, um, which is that you can take six years basically to do the five years of training and what was important to me was that we did not look under the covers for what you were doing with those 12 months i didn't care i was like i don't care if it's a legitimate reason you know is it research or illness i was like i hope someone applies to that because they want to climb mount everest you know i hope that they're just doing whatever it is with life whether it's an unexpected intervention or a planned intervention i wanted people to have the space to live their late 20s and early 30s um, as they saw fit. In the first couple of years, no program took advantage of it. And everyone was like, ha ha, told you, nobody was ever gonna do that. You didn't need to bother. Um, but now there's a pretty steady drumbeat of people who take advantage of the five and six pathway. So that was kind of the first crack uh, to, in the idea that you could build a little bit of flexibility in training. Um, and then we, we just started sort of adding on to that over time, mostly that I want rules to meet reality and people were taking time off. They had to take time off uh, and we wanted to be able to accommodate them. The parental leave issues, um, they're also just um, recognizing and normalizing. You know, you should be able to take time off to be home with your kids. My biggest concern is that the leave policy now is not, the, the leave policy is fine because we have to leave enough time for people to actually train, but the amount of time that people take off is not fine. Like eight weeks, if that's the entire time that you take off the first year of your kid's life, that is not enough. Like you have got to have additional time built in for doctor's appointments, for sickness, for your own crazy, for being exhausted. You have to have additional vacation time. So I really wish that people would do more to extend their training and that the fellowships would be more flexible with their opening start dates. I think that's the next great frontier because people focus on that initial leave um, but they really need additional time. Having kids is just so disruptive, <laughs> more than you can imagine before you have them. And everybody focuses on that, you know, peri-birth period. And um, 
they take a lot of energy for a really long time. So far, 28 years, I'm here to tell you. Um, so those yeah. are, I think trying to make life, make it possible for life to happen during residency has been a big goal of mine. And I think we've made some inroads there. Oh, you absolutely have. I, I, I know that just finishing up my training and some of the things that, that were, were coming, up, coming through the pipe at that time. So I hope that helps me with my board recertification next year, uh, just getting a little bit of insight <laughs> from the board. So. Well, and then there's that, right? So, so there was board recertification, which used to be a high stakes 10 year exam where you were tested on everything that you might never have done. You know, um, you could be a 100% breast surgeon, you still had to answer the questions about esophageal reconstruction. Um, and you had to, you know, pay $1,600 in one pop and you had to go to a Pearson Center. Uh, and it's funny because when Pearson centers first started, they were everybody's favorite thing because prior to that, you had to fly to one of five cities in the country that gave a written exam in a ballroom in a hotel on one day, one day, um, uh, and only five different places in the country. And so when Pearson, you know, Pearson was in every city in the country and lots of small towns too, everyone was like, this is fantastic. I don't have to fly somewhere. And then over time, everyone started hating the Pearson centers because they were fingerprinted and uh, just strip searched. Um, uh, I didn't like that environment. And I think that the new continuous certification, which is really designed as an assessment for learning, um, which really honed in at least broke the practices apart into things that were more approximated people's practices and gave immediate feedback. So if you got a question wrong, you got some direction about what the right answer was. That was really, um, I'm very proud of that because the feedback, I took the first one, I wasn't involved in the exam development, so I took it uh, and I finished it and I was like, wow, I, I learned something and I'm actually going to change my practice based on that, which is the holy grail of you know, of education, someone's actually going to change their practice. And, um, and we hear that over and over again, people are like, that was great, I learned something, and um, I might even change my practice. So that to me is our relationship with surgeons is over the course of their lifetime. It's not just those five years, it's not just that written exam, it's not just that, you know, everybody tells horror stories, oral exam, it's the rest of your life of holding people to standards, giving them sort of the space and time, people work best when they have a deadline and a mandate. Um, everybody wants to do their CME, but they don't until their license is due you know, or until their board certification is due. Uh, and then making that a platform that patients can feel like I, I understand that there's this baseline of accomplishment and commitment that surgeons are held to. All that's really important to me. I also love the board. I'm, I'm a, I really, especially since I've done a lot of international work in places where such a thing doesn't exist. Mm. Um, it's really made me appreciate the the structure around quality that we have in this country. Very true. We're getting to the most fun segment of the podcast, which we call our We Are the Sages segment. <laughs> we are the world. We are the sages. We are the sages. Sing it, everybody. We are the ones who make you bright our day, so let's start treating. I won't sing. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, so the We Are the Sages moment focuses on sharing what you found to be some of the most awesome Sages moments you had, maybe pin it down to a fun segment or anything our audience want to hear. I'm sure you have tons of stories, um, as salacious as possible, probably. <laughs> that is not my style. I said I was a good Puritan, right? <laughs> 
you know, I, I, I don't remember this from listening to the other podcasts, but honestly, the We Are the Sages moment on the Friday night sing-offs, I, that brings me to tears every time. I just, the, uh, the encapsulation of sort of what's best in all of us, you know, that we did this because we wanted to serve, you know, it puts aside the desire, the ambition, the competition, the career development, and it's just, you know, here's where we are. We, you know, we, we wanted to make people better. This is why, this is what we wrote in our med school essay, right? Yeah. This, is what, this is what I was doing with my little nurse's hat, you know, that I wanted to take care of people. And the We Are the Sages, you know, just brings that home every year. And I, I find that it's kind of like, I still like to watch doctor TV shows. I still really like that moment at Sages. Uh, I, I remember there was, I think it was the first or maybe one of the first Sages um, sessions where we talk about complications and it was a video session. Mm-hmm. It was early times when video sessions started become a, becoming more popular and you were heading that session. And as part of your role, you had to go through all the submitted videos um, <laughs> to go to see. And these were horrible complications, like blood spewing everywhere <laughs> and, and inadvertent mistakes that were caught on camera. And I recall you were mentioning that you were editing some of them or reviewing some of them during some flight. Yes, yes. And there were other people watching potentially. (laughs) The guy beside me. Now, in fairness, he was watching some like shoot 'em up video, which I don't like. I do not like like bloody, you know, um, you know, I don't like futuristic stuff. You know, give me a good, you know, either a deep, dark thinking relationship movie or, you know, a rom com. And so I was actually glancing at his screen and seeing like brains explode and stuff from time to time. I was like, ew. <laughs> and, um, but he was also watching my screen. And at one point he just said, he goes, what are you <laughs> watching? And I was like, what are you watching? Like mine at least has some sort of educational bent. You're oh, that's great. Violent, nasty. <laughs> yeah, that was Rocky Horror. That was actually, oh. that was really fun. That was a highlight. Um, yeah, I remember that. I yeah. actually remember that. Yeah, we were were a little nervous and none of those pictures shall ever be shown again, but uh, we were a little bit nervous about how that would go over. I, you know, early Sages days, people, the leadership brought their spouses. Mm. Uh, So the dinners, it was couples and there was a singles table. Uh, And I was always at the singles table. Nat Soper was at the singles table. Um, Jeff Peters was at the singles table. I think Hunter was at the singles table too. There was like a little group of us who were sort of a little bit misfitty, but kind That's of a, a great club. group. Yeah. <laughs> a good crew, yeah. And then that group later turned into, um, you know, the ascendancy, and maybe we're overrunning our time now. The ascendancy in Sages is very long. You know, you're on the executive committee. Once you're on the executive committee, you have all these dinners you have to go to. Uh, and so I've been on the executive committee for years and then you're president elect and then you're president and then you're past president. And after like 10 years of having a dinner every Tuesday night, I got to Sages and I didn't have a dinner on a Tuesday night. And I was like, what the heck? And all plus like the rest of Sages was going to a dinner and I didn't have that role anymore. So I, I called all the past presidents, the, my predecessors, Lee Swanstrom and the, the people I just mentioned. And I was like, what do you do on Tuesdays? And they're like, we don't have anything to do. We like have dinner in our rooms. Yeah. And I was like, well, let's go out to dinner. So we um, we went out to dinner. We called ourselves the Dead Presidents. And, um, <laughs> I heard that, yeah. Yeah, and that has now become like official Sages. Yes. Sages yeah. sponsors. I don't think they call it Dead Presidents, but Past Presidents. Past Presidents. But that was really fun. And it felt a lot like the old singles table. Well, it's clear that you've had a tremendously diverse practice. It's evolved significantly over the years. Um, there's also no doubt that 
you uh, have a significant perspective on how surgery as a field has evolved in that same time frame. As you look to the future, what is one thing that excites you and one thing that concerns you about the future of surgery? Hmm. That's hard. I feel like you should have sent me that ahead of time. Um, you don't have to answer it. Yeah, no, I, I want to think about it for a second. I think I'm, I'm concerned about the, the non-patient care related stressors, you know, the, all the things that turn your eyes away from the, we are the sages theme, you know, the place where your heart is, where it's really to take care of the patients, you know, the electronic medical record, board certification, all the things that you have to do, you know, to document, document, document. I think that the, the pain of that and the, and as every different, uh, dis, organization that's not talking to another one puts in new requirements. I just think that it's disheartening and sort of breaking people's spirits in a lot of fields. Surgery, maybe not, not as much as other fields, because I think we are so satisfied with our work that it provides a little bit of a buffer and the operating room protects you from that sort of thing to some extent. So my, so my worry about it is that uh, the sort of drain, the drain on the heart of taking care of patients and then my, um, you know, I, I don't know that I can say it excites me, but my, my optimism about it is that at core, it is just such fine work. Like you can go to sleep every night knowing that you did some good. Um, and there's, there's no replacing that, you know, um, you can have another job and volunteer, but you can never walk your whole life kind of every day knowing that you improved something for someone, whether it's that you, you know, heard them properly in the office or honored them or smiled at them or took good care of them or walked with them in their hour of fear or need. Um, that, the, the, just the, the value of that, I'm excited. So I am excited whenever anyone starts to embark on a life in surgery. I get that, that excites me. I'm like, you are so lucky. Just wait and see. Yeah, that's yeah. true. That's awesome. I love this hour. This has been, you're a great storyteller, but this has been great <laughs> stories, really great stories. We are so grateful to have the time to spend with you. And we know that the entire Sages family is going to be thrilled to hear this episode. So we can't wait. Um, so thank you for your time. Well, thank you. you, you you're very good interviewers. I was looking forward to this. Sometimes I'm nervous before interviews, but I was like, I don't know. They did an awful good job with those other interviews. I bet it'll be fun. And it was fun. So thank awesome. you. <laughs> Thanks so much. Well, thank you everyone else also for joining us today. We hope to see you at the next Sages National Meeting. It's March 16th through March 19th, 2022. If you're there early, Tuesday night is the dead president's <laughs> dinner. You <laughs> crash that. <laughs> our meeting will be in Denver, Colorado. I very much look forward to seeing you there, Kevin, and of course you, Joe. So thanks everyone for this great episode. And we hope to see you again next month for our next Sages Story podcast. And that wraps up today's episode of Sages Stories. You can view the show notes for additional information mentioned on the show. Also, please visit sages.org for membership information and for the most recent news from our society. Follow us on Twitter at Sages underscore updates. Make sure you hit the like button and subscribe so you don't miss any new episodes.
Tune in again next time. And remember, you can't spell minimally invasive surgery without sages. 